Water wears away stone. How halacha shapes us as ethical agents. Uh, this morning, Professor Reinhold, I think, raised implicitly many questions about halacha, its potential limitations, its limitations. And I think this, hopefully, uh, Sarah will uh, bring to the, ta- uh, to the table uh, some insights into halacha and its relationship to, to the ethical. So, thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Hanukkah. Um, I'm so glad that all of you think that you're, you, what you should definitely do with your Hanukkah is study some philosophy. Um, seems to make a lot of cultural sense. Anyway, okay. So today we've really been spending our time thinking about halacha and ethics, mostly as two systems that interact with each other in lots of complicated and interesting ways. And we've been asking, especially in the last year, and I predict we'll be asking in the next one, um, how these two systems relate to each other. When do they conflict? When do they match up? What does it mean to us that they conflict? What does it mean to us that sometimes they seem to match up? And I think these are really valuable and important questions for us to be asking. But in this year, we're actually going to focus instead on something really different. We're going to focus on how halacha, how practicing the things that halacha asks us to do, can shape us as human beings, what kind of ethical effects those practices might have on us as people. So for those of you who were in the last year, we're gonna spend the next hour and 20 minutes or so assuming that Leibovitz was wrong, okay? So we're just gonna enter into that world, we're gonna explore what it's like, and then if you, at the end of the hour and 20 some some odd minutes, you've decided that actually Leibovitz was right and everything I've said doesn't make any sense, good for you, it's been a successful day, okay? So just imagine we're gonna enter into that world and see what it's like. So over the history of Jewish thought, there have been lots of different ways of thinking about how ethics might, how halacha might shape us as ethical agents. And my goal today is to give you a taste of three different approaches to that question. I'm not here to tell you that any one of them is better than the others. I want to give you a sense of the range of the ways, this way of thinking about halacha, and to explore some of the advantages and disadvantages of each. So to that end, as we go through them, I want you to think about two sets of questions. Here's the first one. Just to think about what's compelling about a given approach. What might pull you along because of it? Why is it interesting? Why is it powerful? And then what might be the dangers of it? What might be lost if we think about halacha in this way? That's the first set of questions. And then the second set of questions is, if we were to adopt this given way of thinking, how is it that we would talk about mitzvot? How would we talk about it to our children? How would we talk about it to our communities? How would we talk about it to our peers? What would that look like to actually live according to this view of halakha? So those are the two questions I want us to think about. What are the advantages and disadvantages? And how would we talk about mitzvot if we had this view of halakha and ethics in mind? Um, to do this, I think it's useful to pick up on an example of a set of a couple mitzvot and focus in on them. Um, and so today we're going to focus on tefillin, mezuzah, and tangentially kriyachma. Um, why do I pick these? One is because they're ritual. So the connection to ethics is kind of less obvious than the hafta recha kamocha, which we talked about a lot in the last year. Um, but it's also because even though they seem kind of ritual and not connected to ethics, they also are sort of speak to kind of our core values in interesting ways. And so 
lots of Jewish thinkers do interesting work with these particular mitzvot and thinking about how halacha and ethics can relate to each other. So those are my reasons for picking those mitzvot. Before I continue, I think it's important to just note for a second that Tefillin is one place where, obviously, there are all kinds of really difficult gender questions and where the question of the relationship between halakha and ethics can be particularly live surrounding sort of gender and ritual in that way. That's not where I want to go in this year. Um, I'm happy to talk to you about that in some other setting, but I'm going to kind of continue this year on the assumption that regardless of sort of how we relate to the gender issues around that, that particular mitzvah, everybody in the room has some sort of access to at least one of tefillin, mezuzah, and kriyachma. Okay, so that's, that's sort of the, thus endeth the preliminaries. Um, and so I wanna jump in and actually start looking at the different approaches here. So we're gonna start with the Rambam, always a good place to start, um, a sort of version of starting at the very beginning. And I want us to understand what he thinks halakha is for. We saw a little bit about, of this last time, but um, we're gonna see it again now. So let's look at text number one on your sheet. This is his first initial, very clear, simple statement. And you'll notice that as soon as we read it, it will, under, it will become very tricky to understand, even though it seems very simple. Okay. The law as a whole aims at two things, the welfare of the soul and the welfare of the body. As for the welfare of the soul, it consists in the multitudes acquiring correct opinions corresponding to their respective capacity. Okay, so there's two basic things that halakha is for, ensuring the welfare of the soul and ensuring the welfare of the body. Seems like, given other things the Rambam says, what's going on with the welfare of the body is things like getting your appetites in check, not just eating all of the donuts that are over there, but only one. Um, sort of managing your desires in such a way that you can be healthy. Um, what's welfare of the soul? For the Rambam, welfare of the soul, which seems like a kind of complicated thing, is actually very simple. It's believing the truth, getting it right. That simple, so far, right? It's just having true opinions. So what's the purpose of halakha as a whole? Two things, welfare of the body and getting it right. Understanding what's true and really believing what's true. Okay, so if we just have that picture of halakha, it's not so obvious how that relates to ethics. Maybe it's just like trying to convince you of like two plus two is four. That doesn't seem like it has an obvious ethical balance. But that's a kind of deception. The Rambam really believes that there's something wrong, not in the sense of not true, but wrong in the sense of not moral or bad or corruptive about thinking things that are false. That can be a kind of counterintuitive notion, I think, in our culture, where it seems like just to be wrong about something, you know, to be wrong about where the A train goes is not morally bad. It's just, you just didn't get it. But for the Ramam, there's something kind of corruptive deep down that if you think something false, you're just gonna be off track, kind of permanently. So you can see how he's gonna sort of flesh this out a little bit more in the, in the next passage, which is from just a few chapters later. This is text number two. Every commandment from among these 613 commandments exists either with a view to communicating a correct opinion or to putting an end to an unhealthy opinion or to communicating a rule of justice or to warding off an injustice or to endowing men with a noble moral quality 
or to warn them against an evil moral quality. Okay, stop. Here's a problem. In the first text, he says there are two purposes. Now there are many more than two. Nice long list, right? It seems to have, things have moved. This is one of the places where you can see that the Rambam thinks that to have welfare of the soul, i.e. to have true opinions, you need all kinds of other complicated things. You need, among them, noble moral qualities, or at least it's connected to having these noble moral qualities, and not having all kinds of evil moral qualities. This is a version of the idea that believing something wrong is actually corrupt. In order to have, and I think the relationship kind of goes both ways. It's both that if you believe true things, you'll be better. And in order to be better, you need to believe true things. Okay. So this is a sort of more rich picture of what welfare of the soul is. It includes having all kinds of good moral qualities that then allow us to kind of recognize the truth and hold on to it once we get it. Right, because it might be you believe the truth and then actually you get straight away by all kinds of other things. And these noble moral qualities, one of the things they do is they give you the power to kind of grab onto it and stick with it. Make sense? So far so good? Okay, so now the question is, what does all of this have to do with mitzvot anyway? Maybe actually all I need to really believe the truth is to just be in the right philosophy seminar and everybody sits down and the professor comes and tells them the truth and they really believe it and off they go. And like, who cares about all these like ritual things that it seems like I have to do. The Rambam thinks that people are much trickier than that. And they require kind of much more constant reinforcement of their right beliefs. It's not just that we can come to some conclusion in a classroom and then go out in the world and totally be like on the right track. We need consistent reinforcement. We're fickle and we change our minds. So we need something that's going to help keep us on track. So he gives lots of different things that keep, help keep us on track, but as I said, the one we're going to focus on is Tfilin, Mezuzah, and Kriyashma. So let's look at number three. Um, text number three comes from a section in the guide where he enumerates, I believe it's 14 different categories of mitzvot and their various purposes. And the one we're going to focus on is the one where he talks about the mitzvot that he, um, in the Mishnah Torah, just in his sort of legal code, describes as Sefer Ahava. The, the section that's about love, that should already tell you where he's going about these things. And so that's, this is the section that we're reading, his little explanation of those mitzvot. So here's text number three. The commandments we have enumerated in the book of love, all of them have manifest reasons and evident causes. Okay, if you were to give a description of the mitzvot that you think make the most rational sense, would tefillin be on your list? It would not be on mine. It's very weird, right? It's weird looking, it's like bizarre. All right, all of them have manifest reasons and evident causes. It's very clear, says the Rambam. This means it's not as clear as you think. Anytime philosophers say it's very clear, that's a good hint that it's not clear at all. All right, I mean that the end of these actions pertaining to the divine service is a constant commemoration of God, to love him and the fear of him, the obligatory observance of the commandments in general, and the bringing about of such belief concerning him. Notice that those are two things. Obligatory observance of the commandments, I would say in order to facilitate the bringing about of such belief concerning him, may he be exalted, that's the Ramam, as is necessary for everyone professing the law. Those commandments are prayer, the recital of Shema, the blessing of food and what is connected with it, the blessing of priests, phylacteries, i.e. tefillin, word only ever used to translate feeling and therefore not very helpful to anyone. The inscription on the po posts of houses and on the gates, 
acquiring a book of the Torah, and reading it at certain times. All these actions, all these are actions that bring about useful opinions. So here, the purpose of these mitzvot is to inculcate a set of beliefs about God, for the Rambam, mostly the unity of God, although all kinds of other things too, that help us get on the right track. In the process of doing so, though, it's not just I have to believe that God is one, right? That I could probably learn in a philosophy seminar, and maybe I could internalize it for the Rambam. But I'm certainly not going to love that one abstract God unless I'm sort of inculcated and helped to do that. And he thinks that ritual is one of the main ways that that can happen. So just to sort of take a step back and sum up, for the Rambam, it seems like the main goal of rituals, especially Kriyachma and its sort of various attendant other similar mitzvot, like tefillin, are designed to help us get the right theological opinions and then have the kind of fortitude to really hold on to them. So they teach us the right thing and then they help us remember and stick to them. And maybe then out of that grows a certain kind of version of love of the abstract God that the Rambam is excited about. Okay, I'd like to take the next like two to three minutes and have you just turn to the person next to you and think about what you make of this account. Does it seem compelling to you? Does it seem crazy? Does it seem to match with your experience of performing these various mitzvot? And just explore like what you think of this, this picture. And if you have time, think about what it would actually look like to sort of really adopt it and what kinds of things you, how you would talk about mitzvot or teach about mitzvot um, if you really believed what the Rambam thinks. Okay, that, does that sound clear? Go for it. Two minutes, three minutes, maybe, everyone. All right. Let's hear from just a couple of tables what you thought of this approach, whether it seems compelling to you, confusing, good, bad. Where are we? I will come, with, come to the mic, or come bring the mic to you. Yeah. People love this, hate this. Uh, what one was... Uh, not oh, fear, but love, uh, but uh, awe. So we think that in the previous hour, um, the word fear was not exactly fear. What meant was awe. So when here it is said to do things for the love of him and fear of him, it's not that you will be punished if you don't do it, but it is for the fact that you are in awe of him. Is it your aunt? Your aunt or not? So he's writing in Arabic, um, but it seems like the, the best analog is Ira. Yeah. This is what Dina said. And another thing, so what we decided that psychologically it is very true. When you start to do things and you, you have a ritual and you repeat this ritual, psychologically it calms you down and gives you structure and then it tunes your mind in a way that you are ready to worship him. So psychologically, all these prescriptions to do mitzvahs and to wear, it's very wise. Right, so we heard from this table that it seems like it's actually valuable and it, it can be psychologically, sort of make psychological sense to say that repeating an action over and over again would sort of give you a routine and a structure that would help direct you in a particular way. And I think that's, that's really where the Ramam is going because he's drawing a lot on, an, on Aristotle who really thinks that habit is like the driving force that helps us get people to do things. Back here. Yeah, but in, in the translation we have here, reading about such belief, I find very difficult. Ma, maybe, 
why uh, putting on tefillin doesn't, unless you're thinking about what's in the tefillin, my, my companion here and I say, and in reality, we're just interested in getting filling on before we can begin davening, so we won't be late. That's, that's, that's the reality of the morning. But I don't see how it means about such a piece. Maybe reinforces it, maybe gets you to think a little bit about commandments, but I don't, I don't see the connection. Right, so here we, we got a kind of classic worry, which is that what if you're just going through by rote? And actually, these rituals don't really help you at all, because really what you're trying to do is like you're going to put on your filling, because that's what you do every morning, and you're going to go on with the next thing. And you don't think so much about like what these are all supposed to mean or the unity of God or all those things. You're exhausted and you just want to get on to the next part of your day. I think sometimes when we talk about these things in Jewish context, we can think about that worry as not being a really serious problem. But I want us to actually investigate the possibility that it's a really serious problem. Because it means that the thing that's supposed to be like kind of the central religious tool that we have for getting us to where we want to go isn't working. That should disturb us, I think, if that's really true. Um, and so, again, I think the Rambam has very high expectations of what we're going to get out of these rituals, and also a tremendous amount of confidence that we will actually get it, at least for most people. And that, I think, may not be the case, and it may not be our experience of what actually performing these rituals is really like. So I want us to actually take seriously the possibility that this account doesn't quite work as well sort of on the ground as the Rambam says it might. And it, just put a pin in that because hopefully if we have time at the end, we'll kind of come back to that worry in the Rambam and what we might do about it. Good? Okay. Can we get one more? I thought I saw another hand. Yeah. Well, I, I just thought a lot of them seem to have to do with verbal things or uh, speaking or writing and a lot of other things in, in, in Judaism besides that. And so... It seemed that he, he was, his focus seemed to be on the possibility that that's, if you follow through, that that will get you to right beliefs, because he's talking about getting to right beliefs, that that will get there by means of focusing on the verbal and intellectual things as opposed to not, not eating this type of food or not doing. Right. So it seems like part of the reason that we, he thinks that Kriyachma, say, can get us to believe certain things is that if you say a formula over and over and over again, you may start to really believe it. So it's worth running this same objection we heard from over here on this point. Is it really true that if you say the same thing over and over and over again, you really believe it? Or sometimes, sometimes it is. Only if you think about it. But even if you think about it, I think it's pretty impossible to repeat some formula over and over again without really totally endorsing every word. Right? Um, philosophers love to use the following example. When you call someone that you really care about and you're talking to them on the phone about, like, you know, who's going to pick up what from the grocery store, and you say, goodbye, I love you. Is that like a heartfelt, like, deep, oh, my goodness, I love you so much? No, it's just what you say. The danger is that Kriyashima becomes just what you say. Right? So that's the, that's the kind of deep nature of the problem. That's the thing we have to be worried about. And it's, I, I, again, I want to stress, I think it's a, a serious worry because the tools that we use and we spend so much time and energy trying to do may not be working if we're sort of not oriented in the right way. Yeah, last comment. I had a couple, a couple of thoughts, but the one I want to bring out is that he seems to be focusing on the intellect as a way to lead to an emotional at some point an emotional thing, like love, to me it's all about, it's an emotional thing. But he's talking in this third section really about opinions. 
And it seems to be the main aim of, I guess, training your mind to have the opinions. Once you have those opinions, you can, and you do those things, then you might, then you might end up with emotional results. But I think the way a lot of uh, our rabbis and teachers are aiming nowadays is the reverse order, which I think is, which my experience is working. So I'm interested in finding out more about this. Okay, that's a great place to close. So the Rambam really does believe that the intellect comes first, and whatever happens with the emotions should follow the intellect. He is of that medieval school that's worried about anything that's not driven by the intellect. Um, that's a view that has like lost a lot of currency in modernity um, for all kinds of complicated reasons. But I think it's one that's worth investigating for two reasons. The first is just that we, we often assume that there's a kind of bar between the intellect and the emotions, and the Rambam doesn't think that such a bar is really there. And so he thinks if we got the intellectual piece right, that would elicit something from us emotionally. Um, I think that's something we don't see, like, for example, in a lot of university philosophy classrooms. And sometimes I don't think we see it in, like, you know, a shear either. Um, but the Rambam lets us play that out in an interesting way, and not to assume that we have, like, two sides of our head. We have the technical, legal, intellectual sort of side that's interested in, like, making little categories, and then we have our feelings, which, like, go somewhere else. The Rambam assumes that they're connected, and that we can put the intellect first. Now, he does that out of a fear of what the emotions will do, and we... I wonder, just, it's worth thinking about, like, what it would be like to kind of say, no, I actually think the emotions are really valuable. But I think the intellect is connected to them and can be, on some case, in some cases, the driver. That's worth exploring, I think, in, in sort of as we, as we go forward. Okay, so I think we've captured a lot of both the value and potentially the problems with this kind of Maimonidean approach. On the one hand, it seems very clear what these things are supposed to teach us, and it helps us sort of by practicing them, we can help get ourselves in a rhythm that will sort of get this belief into our kishkas in a, in a strong way. But the worry is, what if it doesn't go the way we planned? And actually, we're just going through the motions. We're putting on fill-in because every morning that's what we do, and we just kind of use muscle memory, and we go on to the next thing. And then we're not actually doing what this whole system is really for. That's, I think, the advantage and the worry. Good. So let's, let's put a pin in that and think about those, those problems as we go forward. Um, I want to move on now to, and now, for something completely different, although a person of the same name. Um, so I want to talk about Moses Mendelssohn. Um, Moses Mendelssohn was born in Dessa, Germany in 1729, where he becomes a kind of important figure in the Haskalah. And what I want to focus on today is not sort of his political position as an advocate for German Jews, um, but instead on the defense of halakha that he offers in this book called Jerusalem, which is his main sort of serious philosophical work about Judaism. And he has a very idiosyncratic but very interesting picture of what he thinks halakha is for. The book is aimed not at Jews but at Christians, and it is designed to say, to a Christian audience who thinks that halakha is just this system of law that's competing with the state's law. No, no, you've made a mistake. Our law doesn't compete with the state's law. Our law is concerned with something else altogether. Not concerned with maintaining order or all this other stuff. Our law is for something else. So here's a picture of what he thinks it's for. 
Um, before we dive into the text that I've given you, you need a little bit of background from the rest of the book that since we're not reading the whole book, I'm just going to kind of say over to you so you have a sense of it. Um, Mendelssohn, the key to understanding Mendelssohn's argument about what he thinks halakha is for is to understand that for Mendelssohn, the central biggest worry that you can have is that you will be committing idolatry. This is the religious problem that we all need to worry about. Now, he doesn't think that I, the, the kind of worry, idolatry that he's worried about is not like, oh, I'm going to go find a statue of Aphrodite and I'm going to go bow down to the statue. That's not what he's worried about. He's worried about something much more pedestrian. He's worried about writing. So you get to like two-thirds of the way through this 200-page book, and he's like, by the way, I just want you to know idolatry is a serious problem, and guess what's idolatrous? Writing. And you're like, thanks. Why did you write this book? How did I get this far in this book? Um, and he really thinks that writing is idolatrous for the following reasons. One is a kind of bizarro historical account where he thinks that actually letters used to be little pictograms of animals and all kinds of other things. And so they're like little pictures. Seems a bizarre account, probably not true, but he, he believes it and uses it in the service of an argument. But what's more interesting for our purposes is that he thinks that words are little symbols that convey meaning. And words, once they end up on the page, seem like they're fixed. And they have a specific meaning that will always be the same. So when you see a word, you always know this word D-O-G means dog. I know what a dog is. Everything is very stable and clear. And that therefore, when I read and writing becomes the kind of main means by which information is transmitted, everyone becomes very convinced that they've got it right and they're certain because they see it in the text. And he's really worried about this and thinks that this is like going to lead us totally off track because we're all going to be convinced that we think we've read it, we understand what it says, everything is plain and simple and clear. This, he thinks, is like the big mistake of his time and a serious, serious problem. So if we believe this about writing alongside, along with Mendelssohn, we have the following problem. It would be really nice if we could communicate some religious truths or information to one another over time. That would be really useful. And actually, it turns out that through most of history, the way we did that was we wrote stuff down, and then we passed things down from one person to the next. But if writing is sort of off, out of bounds, or at least writing is potentially problematic for this reason, we need some other tool. And for him, halakha is that tool, or at least ritual actions, because they're symbols, and they can communicate some information, but exactly how they do that and exactly what information gets communicated changes over time. Just for a sort of concrete example before we jump into the text, here's one way of thinking about it. Suppose someone asks you, what do Hanukkah candles represent? I bet in this room we could come up with 20 different answers. They'd all be different things. Oh, it's bringing light into the world. Oh, maybe it's this miracle. Maybe it's this military victory. Maybe it's all those things together. We could come up with all kinds of different things that Hanukkah candles are for and the Hanukkah candles are supposed to do. Mendelssohn says, great, that's exactly what I want. I want a symbol whose meaning can be debated and discussed, and that's what I'm after. That's what halacha is for. It's to facilitate this kind of conversation. So let's jump into the text and see how he plays that out. We'll look now at text number four. Here he's going to sort of state the problem about trying to preserve um, religious ideas without writing. How difficult it is to preserve the abstract ideas of religion among men by means of permanent signs, i.e. Um, writing 
assuming now that statues and pictures are kind of obviously out of, out of bounds. Images and hieroglyphics lead to superstition and idolatry, right? That seems obvious. We think that the statue is God, big problem. And our alphabetical script makes man too speculative. It displays a symbolic knowledge of things and their relations too openly on the surface, and it spares us the effort of penetrating and searching and creates too wide a division between doctrine and life. So there's one other worry here. Not only will I get too confident that I know what it means, but if all I have to do to understand like what's at the core of religion is just to read the book that tells me, then basically I read the book in my seminar, I walk out the door, that's it. And for Mendelssohn, that's not a really deep religious life because it's isolated from what you do the rest of the time. In order to remedy these defects, we're back in the text now about sort of in the middle of the paragraph, the lawgiver of this nation, i.e. the Jews, gave the ceremonial law. This is a term that he coins, and he means all of the parts of halakha that aren't kosher and mishpat, all of the parts of halakha that aren't about sort of civil law and interaction between you know, sort of financial dealings and things like that. Religious and moral teachings were, be to connected, were to be connected with men's everyday activities. The law, to be sure, did not impel them to engage in reflection. It prescribed only actions, only doing and not doing. The great aim of this constitution seems to have been men must be impelled to perform actions and only induced to engage in reflection. So the idea here is halatha is going to impel us to do certain things. And in the process, we will then be kind of led along to reflect about what they mean. We'll do, we have to do the thing, and then we'll think about it as we go. Mendelssohn then goes on to give this like really, I think, kind of poignant and lovely description of how that's supposed to work, um, describing an interaction between a parent and a child where the child is asking, basically, what is this thing you've got on your doorpost? That's text number five. In everything a youth saw being done, in all public as well as private dealings, on all gates and on all doorposts, in whatever he turned his eyes or ears to, he found occasion for inquiring and reflecting, occasion to follow an older, wiser man at his every step, to observe his minutest actions and doings with childlike attentiveness, and to imitate them with childlike docility, to inquire after the spirit and the purpose of those doings, and to seek the instruction which his master considered him capable of absorbing and prepared to receive. So for Mendelssohn, when, I, when the child looks at the door and says, but wait, what's that? That's an opportunity for a human connection and, an, and a discussion and a reflection and an interaction that would not be possible if instead of having the thing on the doorpost, at a certain age, you handed the kid the book that said, here's what you have to believe. That won't work. What will work and what's valuable for Mendelssohn is we discuss what these symbols mean. But, of course, that only works if there's lots of different answers to the question of what's the mezuzah for on the door. Because if I only give sort of a basic, I give an immediate answer that's the answer, then the conversation is over the first time I walk by the mezuzah and all the next times are kind of a waste. Instead, we need to really think, right? Mendelssohn wants it not to be a waste every time I walk by the mezuzah. Those are all opportunities for discussion about what do these symbols mean, and what's their value? Okay, let's pause there. I want us to think a little bit about how this is the same and different than what we got in the Rambam. On the one hand, it might seem similar. The purpose of these practices is to help us understand some, some kind of religious truth. 
That's true for Mendelssohn, and it's true for the Rambam. But for Mendelssohn, what those truths are is not clear. And it's never going to be clear. Instead, what we're going to do is spend our time reflecting and thinking about those truths and discussing them and debating them, but we're not going to ever really be able to state them. For the Rambam, some of the time at least, we can say very specific things about them. We can say the purpose of Kriyachma, for example, is to get us to understand the unity of God. Mendelssohn will say, that's one thing that we do, but there are lots of other things too. And what I'm actually really interested in is in the conversation we have about what these symbols mean. Does that make sense? I think we won't um, spend the whole spend time talking at our tables, but I would be interested to hear from a couple of you about what you think about this model, whether it's compelling, whether it seems interesting or dangerous, both neither. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, I really like um, how like in Judaism, there's like a lot of answers to like the same questions, and they just like creates just like a lot of deep discussions and shows like how how people take different meaning from the same thing and can still be like together in the same community. Yeah. So just just to repeat some of some of um, what we just heard, there's something very powerful about the idea that. In, in Jewish community, we can actually have lots of different interpretations of the same practice, and we can be in community together and talk about that together, even though we have lots of different views. And we can debate and value that conversation, even though we don't all agree, right? Which is something that might not be accessible in another situation. Yeah. I'm interested in the distinction he makes between writing, which he assumes as a very, words have a very clear, distinct, and static meaning, and these mitzvah, these actions, which is a much more open-ended, maybe never-ending meaning. Why, why is that? Uh, especially since Torah study requires some like writing and you know, get various, or reading writing, and you see such varieties of, of meanings even in the writing. Okay, that's a wonderful question. The question was, why is Mendelssohn so convinced that writing has such clear meanings, and actions don't. Actions are sort of debatable, but writing is clear. Seems like actually, right, we have a rich tradition of being really confused about what given what lots of words means, and we debate that all the time. I think Mendelssohn is less sort of aware of that than he ought to be in some places. Um, but at the same time, the reason he gives is words on the page are static over time. Actions disappear once you've done them, right? Like I can't, like the fact that somebody put on fill-in this morning is not like legible to me just by like looking around the room. It happened and it disappeared. And so for him that means it's kind of limited temporally and I won't be convinced that it's permanent because it's obviously not permanent. And he might, you might think then that the words of Torah are eternal in some way because they've been passed down for a long time and they're written down in this scroll and there's all kinds of sort of weight to them. But he thinks the same thing is not true of actions. I think this is a weak point in his argument potentially because it may be that actually actions are very static because we repeat all kinds of patterns of behavior over and over and over again. So I, it's a very good point and it's a potential kind of problem in the thinking, but at the same time we might say, okay, what would it mean to actually think about our actions as transitory in the way that Mendelssohn wants? I have, there was a hand over here. So, it just seems to me that it's actually the opposite, not even in the network. To me it seems exactly the opposite. The routine 
stops the questioning. Like so, when I think about the seder, right? That is different. It's not routine. So it was for question, but because I'm so routine. I feel like it's not going to spur that creativity. Same thing with the routine, spurring the love. And it's, I feel like it's just this mindlessness that we get into. So I feel like it's even the opposite. Like it just doesn't resonate with me at all. Yeah. Great. So just in case anybody didn't hear it, it, the, the idea was basically, well, this actually thinking about these actions are not going to spur the kinds of conversations that we want. In fact, they're going to shut them down because these things will become so routine that we just won't really think about them. I think this is a really, again, a really powerful and important critique, but I also think some of this is on us to imagine what our communities would have to be like in order to actually spur the kinds of conversation that Mendelssohn wants or that the Rambam wants. What would we actually have to do to make it not just routine, right? That's the question I think I want you all to sort of have in your mind as you leave here. What would we have to do? What would, what would shul look like, right? Like what would, what just like regular davening, what would it look like? How would it be different? Maybe it wouldn't be different at all. Worth thinking about. Okay, I'm going to take one more comment and then I want to keep going. Because we've got one more picture to see. Okay, I'd like to make a little trouble here. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but find it comforting the, um, the permanence of words. And um, uh, on the other hand, the permanence of words can sometimes be make it so that it becomes a canon and uh, not be some problems with that. But on the other hand, in actions, if it's open to many, many interpretations, um, Mendelssohn is assuming that there's some kind of responsibility in not taking it too far. That there are going to be lines drawn, there are going to be limits. And my question is, who determines in those cases where those lines and where those limits are? Because once you get to a certain point where you're creatively interpreting the actions, and at some point it runs the risk of completely losing its meaning altogether once you've completely gone off the deep end. Yeah, so here the worry is, what if these actually words are permanent in a good way and the transient nature of the actions means that we don't even know what they're for and they kind of become empty in a certain way. And the other point was sort of that Mendelssohn relies on there being some person who draws limits. I think he does, and that's why for him the fundamental relationship is either father to son, it's always son, sorry, I'm happy to talk about that more, but, um, or teacher to student. So it's always an older and wiser man. That's what he says, right? Somebody who is actually guiding you. So it can't just be totally a free-for-all. There are limits, and he is interested in maintaining them. You know, how successful that can be in a kind of long-term way, I think, is hard. Um, the other kind of more, let's say, emotional piece of this that is worth thinking about is that I think it can be dispiriting to perform a ritual all the time and not know what it means. I think that can be kind of defeating. And to say, oh, well, actually, you know what? There's like four different opinions, and there's this one disagrees with that one, and this one disagrees with that one. But like, I don't know, I just do it, <laughs> right? I think that's a kind of common sort of feeling that I see a lot around me in the Jewish world all the time, and that I sometimes myself feel. Um, and I certainly feel it like if my non-Jewish colleagues ask me like, oh, why do you do X? And I'm like, I don't know, there's like six different answers. And I'm like, no, it's not my question. Um, there can be something defeating there. And I think the clarity of the Rambam can be empowering in a certain way. Because you know why you're doing it. You don't have to say, I don't know why I'm doing it. I'm doing it to have a conversation about why I'm doing it. Just say, no, I'm doing it because I need to believe X. Because it's true. Like, there's a clarity in that that can be very powerful. And Mendelssohn gives up on parts of that. 
in order to preserve the other things that he's talking about. So there's a benefit and a cost. Um, so I think all of these views in certain ways. Okay, I want to move on to the third picture. And the third picture comes from this book, which I think is from 2018, the Mara Benjamin, who actually at one point learned Adresha, and I think puts that in the acknowledgments. So just to sort of to, to name, name that. Um, and she's written a wonderful book about what she calls maternal subjectivity, the experience of being a mother, and kind of the history of Jewish thought. It's a wide-ranging book that includes like her experience of changing her kids' diapers and also Rosenzweig and also Gemara. It's like an amazing sort of weaving together lots of different things. You should all read the book. Um, but I want to talk about one particular thing that she describes at the beginning of the book. She talks about the idea that we can think about, lots of modern Jewish thinkers have been really worried about the concept of obligation. They have all kinds of accounts of how the concept of obligation is supposed to go. Um, but one thing, place they haven't looked is a place where in our everyday lives, there's lots of notions of obligation, and that is parenting. The parents have all kinds of obligations to their kids. They perform those obligations. And she thinks that's actually a very good starting place for understanding what halachic obligation is about which I think is like a really radical idea, and I want us to just like explore what it's like um, for the next few minutes. Okay, so let's start with text number six. She's going to sort of make a comparison between obligation and specifically the obligation of putting on tefillin to maternal obligation. Here's text number six. She's just going to explain how she thinks about tefillin. To be a Jew is not to be free from constraint. Rather, it is regularly to experience the movement from ignoble bondage in Egypt, Avdut, to divine service, Avodah. For unto me the children of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am Hashem, your God. By wrapping oneself in tefillin, the worshiper reenacts this narrative and assents to it. So here she's saying one of the central experiences of being a Jew is to be in service to God. And the way that I enact that, one of the ways somebody enacts that, is by the practice of putting on tefillin. The liturgical basis for placing the tefillin straps around the finger from the prophet Hosea attests that the yoke of divine service is born in love. Right? So this is, in fact, what distinguishes it between the abdut of being in Egypt and divine service, avodah. Avodah, avodah Hashem is done in love. And so then she's going to quote the, the verses from, from Hosea that, that sort of express this and that are said as you put the tefillin on your finger. And I will betroth thee unto me forever, yea, I will betroth thee to me, unto me in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know Hashem, end of the pasuk, server and served are bound in love. By matching words of betrothal to that act of laying tefillin, the rabbis implicitly claim that the Torah and Mitzvot were given as a lasting sign of divine commitment and devotion. The Jew who binds his arm responds to this gift by committing himself to a life of steadfast service. There's a lot that went on in that paragraph, but the most important thing that I want you to get out of it is that the practice of divine service is a practice of love instantiated through a repeated physical practice, right? This, this action that you take over and over again. So far, so good? Okay. Let's go on to text seven, and that's where she makes the comparison to the experience of maternal care. 
maternal experience of caregiving as love illuminates God's love for Israel and Israel's response in the performance of mitzvot. Long sentence, basically what she said is, maternal experience helps us understand the relationship between Am Yisrael and God when they do mitzvot. Maternity offers, in this way, a corrective in a culture that defines love strictly as an involuntary emotion, as irrational and therefore radically uncontrollable. While Jewish sources recognize that love includes this mysterious, uncontrollable, and unwilled dimension, they also suggest that rigorous active practice can cultivate love. This gets us back to some of the, pro some of the, the things we talked about earlier when we discussed the Rambam, and sort of the way we tend to think about emotion as very separate from the intellect. We also, in like the contemporary culture, think about love and emotion in general, but really love very specifically, as something that you can't force yourself into, you can't practice yourself into. You just, it's either there or it's not, right? I think if you think about like Hollywood movies, this is a kind of standard trope. Um, and she's saying Judaism gives us a powerful tool for critiquing that view because it's limited. It doesn't capture all the different kinds of loving experiences that we have. So... Parental caregiving manifests this performative aspect of love. Most of the time, affect state is not the key factor that drives parents to attend to their children or prevents them from doing so. Here's what she just said in philosophy is affect state means just how you feel at a given time. So what she's saying is, what's the thing that drives you to take, feed your kids in the morning? Not that you like have some deep, warm, fuzzy feeling, but because you just, they have to do it. Primal, so back in the text, primal visceral love of one's child, as powerful as it can be, does not always, or perhaps even usually, tell a parent what to do vis-a-vis -vis one's child any more than does one's equally primal frustration or rage. So just because I love my kid doesn't mean that it's obvious to me exactly how to respond to their needs, nor, on the other hand, does it mean that when I'm angry, that should determine how I'm going to respond to their needs. As in Sarah Ruddick's discussion of one's preservative love characteristic of maternal thinking, the right question is not, what did you feel, but rather, what did you do? Sarah Ruddick is sort of an important feminist philosopher, and one of her main ideas is, we think of love as this warm, fuzzy feeling. No, love is getting up and actually taking care of people. And you can do that whether you're happy with the person, whether you're not happy with the person. You do that and all kinds of different emotional states if you're like a normal mortal person who sometimes gets frustrated with the people around you. Proper human action, back in the text after the ellipsis, about half the way down through the paragraph, proper human action in daily life cannot rest or fall on enthusiasm, zeal, or intensity of feeling. Certainly one cannot rely on these feelings to keep a dependent. This is an important point, right? If you want to keep a kid alive, having a nice warm feeling for them may be very useful, but it's not going to keep them alive because actually what you have to do is give them food, right? You have to do very practical things. Parents execute their daily, daily acts of diaper changing, cleansing, feeding their young children as an expression of their love, right? But child rearing demands that acts of service continue even when parents don't want to attend to their children and when they don't feel affectionate toward them. Okay, this is a picture of parental love. Now that she's given you a picture of what it, what, um, Jewish ritual is supposed to be, and what parental love is supposed to be. Now she's going to give you the comparison. Are we ready? This is the key moment. Likewise, the people of Israel are to perform mitzvot out of, and as the expression of, their love of God. A lot has just happened in that sentence. It's not only that the people of Israel are supposed to 
get themselves to the point where they love God by performing the mitzvot. The mitzvot are themselves an expression of that love. The validity of the performance does not depend on whether an individual is gripped moment to moment by a sense of gratitude or love of God. Instead, the performance becomes a means by which the action can be regulated. So it's not that I have to feel some intense love of God every time I daven. That expectation is kind of not reasonable. And as we said sort of throughout thus far, it's very hard to actually do it. But instead, it's a means by which we sort of regulate our action. This is a version, in a certain way, of getting us off the hook of the problem I was emphasizing and sort of pushing us to think so hard about earlier. This gives us license to say it's okay to sometimes go through the motions. Because sometimes going through the motions can also be an, an expression of love. And sometimes we're going to be frustrated that we have to sit in shul. And sometimes we're going to be frustrated that, oh, now I have to do this other weird ritual again. That's okay. That's part of our relationships with all kinds of beings. And it can also be a relationship, part of our relationship with God. Okay, so on this picture, she has both given us something and taken something away. She's given us the permission, as I just said, to have a, a, a relationship where some of the time we don't want to do it, some of the time it feels really boring or difficult, and we can still be in a relationship of love with God in the ways that like, someone like the Rambam wants, but we've been sort of let off the hook. That can be very comforting and powerful, and I think the kind of comparison to maternal love is in itself like, really interesting and powerful. But there's a danger, and I think the danger is we let ourselves off the hook too much, right? And then we sort of, like, let the train go away. The other, the other thing to think about is, what is the picture of God that's being deployed here? It's very important. We've, we've come a long way from the Maimonidean God, about whom we can say very little at all, to the kind of God who needs our care in some sense, Right? The Maimonidean God doesn't need us to put on tefillin to care for God in some bizarre way. Mara Benjamin's picture makes it, right, on the analogy, if the person performing the ritual is analogous to the mother, who's analogous to God? The child. That's wild! Right? Like, let's just stop there. That's a long way from, like, Avinu Malkinu this abstract entity, or even our father figure, right? That's flipping the imagery in a very serious way. That can be very powerful, but it also, I think, has its limits, right? Good. This is a really interesting picture, and I think one that may provoke a lot of reactions. So I think it'd be really useful for us to spend like two or three minutes at our tables just talking about it, and then we'll, we'll get back together, okay? Sound good? Go forth. Hi, okay. I wanna hear from a couple groups about what you talked about and what, what do you make of this, of this picture of, of Benjamin's account of sort of thinking about meets vote as analogous to caring for young children? Anybody? No take. No one had any thoughts about comparing God to a baby. Really? Come on. All right, good. <laughs> So one of the things that you spoke about um, was the sort of seemingly blasphemous nature that you discussed about how um, if God is a child, the implication of this text is that God will die if we do not engage in ritual actions, um, which seems relatively blasphemous. And one of the things that we were discussing was 
other models of relationships that are described in Jewish texts um, for um, God and Am Yisrael. So you discussed the parent-child relationship in both directions, and we were discussing another relationship that comes up frequently in Tanakh, which is the lover relationship with God and Israel as lovers. And that led us into a discussion of how would this text or this understanding of actions in relationships apply to a lover relationship? Because here it seems to be that what you do to demonstrate love in a parent-child relationship is perform the actions even when they're wrote. Mm -hmm. To what extent do performing actions even when they're wrote or performing actions without feeling work as well in a relationship between two lovers as they do in a relationship between a parent and a child? So that's what we were discussing. Make us sound a lot smarter than we are. Okay, I think this is a really interesting question. We need to pause for a moment. So the idea that, that we heard was, oh, let's think about other relationships between God and Am Yisrael that pop up in sort of Jewish thought. And one of them is this relationship of two lovers. What would it be like if we thought about the kind of sort of rote actions that, um, that Mary Benjamin is describing, but we translate them not to parent-child relationships, but to love relationships. I wanna take us back to the thing I said was sort of a favorite example of philosophers. You're on the phone asking what to buy at the grocery store and you say, love you, bye, and hang up the phone. Is that, right, we think that that's not like some deep profession of love in the same way that maybe there were those professions at some other point. But it's not like there's something wrong with just being love you, bye. That's not a bad thing to do, right? It's just part of how we perform that we care about one another, even in a love relationship, a sort of lover relationship, I think. So again, I think there's a sort of zeitgeist that thinks that if it's not from some sincere deep place there's something like deeply off base but i challenge us to think whether that's actually true about relationships with people you know even romantic relationships where there are also mundane things that we do that sort of demonstrate care right and i think the kind of the statement of love you bye hangs up the phone is is one one way to get into thinking about that but yeah i think she and she even Mary Benjamin even talks about sort of translating this parent-child relationship into some of the the lover relationship. And you see, even when she quotes the passage from Hosea, she's sort of thinking about those as connected in interesting ways. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, we were talking about that same problem about God being a baby, and um, I said an analogy that I remember hearing from. Um, or Jason Rubenstein a long time ago, where like if I'm in a like a relationship, a romantic relationship with someone, and I talk to them three times a day for years, and they've never said anything back to me, like we have a very bad problem. <laughs> but if I've said like millions of words to a baby, and they've never said anything back to me, then it means like everything is going really well. What's supposed to happen? <laughs> and I think that's something that like can make something like davening every day and actually feel like it's important and it's doing something useful. And that sort of falls apart if you have too many expectations of like a normal human conversation. Right. Right. So if you think about davening as talking to God, it's a very one-sided conversation for most of us most of the time. And you might think that's a kind of messed up relationship, but actually like the way we interact with young children or, and babies, right, who, who don't speak back to us. Is, is, is sort of analogous to that. And I think that's a very, that's a very powerful way of thinking about that. Okay, I wanna just close by turning to two more texts, one from Benjamin, and then hopefully if we get to it, one from the Rambam, but that will be bonus points if we do. 
in part because we've already seen it once today. Okay, so here's the thing. If any of you have taken care of a baby, you know that they're very fickle. And there are things, very specific things that they love and very specific things that they hate. And if you've taken care of more than one baby, then you will happen to know that they often like very different things, right? So um, Benjamin captures this in a really beautiful passage. And she talks about the very particularized nature of the kinds of obligations we have for parental care. So this is text number eight. To be an obligated self was to be subject to the law of another. She's describing her sort of initial experience having, I think it's her first kid, the law of the baby. The law could not be fulfilled in abstract, right? You can't just think about fulfilling the law. You have to actually do something, but only in active embodied maternal, material actions, soothing, feeding, cleaning, comforting, distracting, smiling, and wiping. It became the law of the crying toddler who sought out not just any, but specifically our or my comfort, the law of her seeking not our or my face for approval or interest. The law of the baby, I love the capital letters, so make sure you're following on the, on the page, was not the law of any baby, but rather the law of this baby. This baby had been woken up throughout the night because she was born small. This baby responded with great interest to one particular plush toy. This baby's imperative was to hold her at a certain angle so she would fall asleep for a nap. The next day, the next week, this baby no longer responded to that position or that toy. So the kind of obligation that's being described here is one that's very particular to the person to whom it's directed, right? So you have an obligation to the child, and sometimes what that obligation is is to give the child that particular blanket, the one that they love. And you can't give them another blanket because it will serve no function, right? We've all had this, this, this is, a, I think, a pretty common experience. So this has, this is a very interesting picture. It has, like a lot of the views I've suggested, an advantage and a disadvantage. Here's the advantage. It lets us account for all kinds of specificity in halacha that would otherwise seem kind of bizarre. Why does the tefillin shal rosh have the number of boxes that it has and not one more? Because that's the way God wants it. And it, so it, it captures something about the particularity of halachic actions that makes, that sort of, it gives it color in a certain way. It explains why they're very specific and why it matters whether I do them at a particular time or in a particular way. It's a good analogy in that way. It matches well. On the other hand, one of the things that about a relationship between two human beings, even between two human beings who are, you know, where one of them is sort of less of a robust, independent individual, is that they have very specific features that aren't replicated you know, when you go to another human relationship. And so it depends not only on the baby, right? The law of the baby, but there's also the law of the, how the parent responds to the baby. And that's a very specific relationship that's not replicated across groups of people, right? So the relationship between one parent and a child is not gonna be the same as the relationship between another parent-child pair. That may not be as good an analogy for halacha because one of the things that we think that halacha can do is provide some kind of uniting context for us all to be part of a, the same relationship as a group. And that's not what goes on in the parent-child relationship. And you know, Benjamin really drills down on the particularity piece in part because she wants to account for these very particularistic rituals that Jews do that other people don't do in the same way. But at the same time, it relies on the analogy relies on a relationship between two individuals who are highly particularized. And it may not translate well to a very big group. 
Does that make sense? So that's the upside and the downside. Um, I want to close by looking at a passage from the Rambam that we actually saw this morning, but that we didn't see. I'm going to put a different part of the paragraph in an ellipsis that Professor Reinhold did and, and lean on a different part of the passage. The Rambam is worried also about the particularity of a relationship between a specific person and God and how it might affect that specific person. But the Rambam basically says, I know that sometimes it's not going to go out, work out very well. Sometimes halakha is not going to shape the person the way I want it to. And I'm okay with it. I'm just going to roll with it. It's all right. That, that's the cost of doing business. So let's read passage number nine. Among the things that you, will like, that you likewise ought to know is the fact that the law does not pay attention to the isolated. The law was not given with a view to things that are rare. Right? For in everything that it wishes to bring about, be it an opinion or a moral habit or a useful work, it is directed only toward the things that occur in the majority of cases and pays no attention to what happens rarely or to the damage occurring to the unique human being because of this way of determination, determination and because of the legal character of government. So here the, well, let's do one more sentence. You will not wonder at the fact, as in you will not be surprised by the fact that the purpose of the law is not perfectly achieved in every individual. And that on the contrary, it necessarily follows that there should exist individuals whom this governance of the law does not make perfect. So the halakhah is supposed to make us, remember, welfare of the soul or welfare of the body. But there are going to be those people for whom it has the opposite effect. It makes them worse. And he says, that's going to be the way it is, because the law is a general, universal thing that sort of cuts across. This is not the law of this baby, right? This is the law, kind of a general, universal concept. So he's going to say, for not everything that derives necessarily from the naturally specific forms is actualized in every individual. It's okay. The law is general. That's what laws are supposed to be. And that's where I want to end up. So I think what we get from these sort of two comparisons at the end is that for Benjamin, one of the most compelling ways to explain halakha is to explain it as something highly particularized that is a, about or that is sort of analogous to a relationship between two human beings who have very specific needs, who can be very fickle, who sometimes want something very particular, and then it seems like actually you don't really understand what they want, but they want exactly that toy, exactly that thing. And the Rambam, who seems to say, yeah, human beings are particular, they have very particular needs, but what Halakha gives us is an opportunity to kind of rise above those particularities and to talk on a different level. Those, I think, are two very different pictures about what we think halakha is supposed to do. And it allows us to relate very differently to what exactly happens when halakha doesn't seem to produce the moral outcomes that we want, when it doesn't shape us the way we expect. The Ramam, on some level, on the one hand, is going to say urgently, it matters whether this, this practice actually results in the opinion that you want. I want it to produce that opinion. But I'm going to recognize that some subset of the time, it's just not going to do what I want it to do. Ah, the system needs to be universal. I'm interested in preserving that against all else. And Benjamin's going to say, no, it's actually really important for this relationship to be a relationship between two people who have particular needs. I think sort of on the ground, 
in terms of how we think about how our communities look like, what our communities look like, you'll see that the Rambam is going to say the rules are the rules. And there's not a lot of room to kind of maneuver to adapt to someone's particular needs or to adapt even to making that relationship work well. I'm just going to have to let it be the way it is because there's something valuable in maintaining kind of the integrity of the system for the whole group. That's what law is about, right? That's the nature of law and governance or something, what he says. But for Benjamin, it's about an individual relationship. I think that really leads to very different pictures of communities, right? If what we're trying to facilitate is an individual relationship, we might prioritize certain things. And if we want everything to kind of look uniform, we'll prioritize that at the expense of potentially those individual relationships. So these are two very different pictures in the end of what we expect halacha to do and to be for. Um, I'd be really interested to hear from you all what you think about these two models and whether you think they're both valuable, neither are valuable, what would it look like to follow one, or even what would it look like to follow both at the same time? Yeah. I once worked for a gentleman, uh, Simon Delimple, on the deceased, and he said, um, I asked this question, and, he's, he's, and I said, these are people come in and they're really, um, they behave in a very correct manner, and they're doing all the halakha, and uh, and they're really not nice, but he responded to me and he said to me, can you imagine if they, these people didn't do halakha? <laughs> yeah, so um, we just heard a kind of an amazing statement, right, of, well, turns out, um, aren't we disturbed by all these people who seem to keep halakha, but they turn out to be really terrible and the kind of, you know, quick retort as well. Wouldn't, it be, wouldn't they be worse off if they didn't do this? I think that that can be true, but I also want to like seriously entertain cases, and I think we, we don't have to talk about them out loud, but I think it's worth thinking in our own head about cases where halakha actually seem to not make things better. I think we can all come up with those cases in, 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 in a moment or in, with particular people or particular situations. And I think it's useful to think about what went wrong in those cases and why our communities were structured in such a way that it actually sort of undermined its own purposes. Sometimes people justify their bad behavior by the halakha, and that makes it worse. Right. So sometimes people, right, like, it, it can be a good excuse, right? Like, it's, it's the ultimate argument stopper in some ways. Why did you do that bad thing? Oh, God told me to. I'm off the hook, right? I mean, I think that in itself is a, is a moment where you should be like, wait, something's gone wildly wrong here, if that's the, the excuse we're going to use for doing something bad. According to Rambam, according to Rambam, who says that it's not it's not going to work for protect everybody. Does that mean that for that individual, is he or she still obligated under the house? Great question. So the question was, if the Rambam thinks that halacha is actually going to make some people worse, does it mean that those people are off the hook? They don't have to keep halacha. This is a question that will, if you answer it, you can get many tenured faculty positions at many universities. It's a very hard question. Um, and it's a question about which it's very tricky to understand exactly what the Rambam thinks. A lot of it turns on the passage that actually we saw from Professor Reinhold in the past year um, from Shmona Prakim, where he seems to say that it's possible that one should sort of direct your energies toward God, even in a situation where you're doing, where you're sinning. You should be sort of directing yourself to God. And that's a passage that many scholars have thought means that, yeah, if you're in the category of people who are going to be made worse by this, 
you should, you should get off the wagon. Um, now, he caveats that in like a million ways. One of them is he thinks that basically the only people who are qualified to actually make that determination are profits. So for the regular run of you who are nonprofits, i.e. everyone in this room, so you, 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 can't, you can't really know, so you better stay on, the, stay on track. Um, I think he, he's basically willing to accept the cost that it will make some people worse, and there's nothing we can do. I think he just kind of is willing to do that, in part because I think he is not all that interested in what happens to like the run-of-the-mill person sort of in day-to-day -day life, because he's, again, as, as Professor Reinhold said, really an elitist in that way. Like, I just think he's just not that concerned. Like, we're, this is supposed to produce human excellence, but like most run-of-the-mill kind of stupid people are not actually going to get that far on the excellence scale anyway. So like, if they get a little worse, eh. Like, I think actually that's what he thinks. Yeah. I think this, working off this last question from this gentleman, the system we have gives us individuals, and not books, but individuals, rabbis, to help us grapple with these things and find solutions that are hard to find, but that's part of what their job is. And that's compassionate Judaism. So within the law. Yeah, I think one thing that is, even though I've sort of presented these as three distinct pictures, one thing that's valuable is to recognize that for all three of them, this is not something you do on your own, ever. Even for the Rambam, who's like way more of a loner than all these other people. Um, in all of the cases, the best way to understand halakha and the best way to get out of halakha what you're supposed to get is to do it in a group of other people, right? So for, for Benjamin, that's going to be thinking about your relationships of care to other people, right? Whether that be for a young child or for all kinds of other people, older parents, siblings, all kinds of different relationships that you might have. Um, for Mendelssohn, that's going to be in a dialogue with another person. And for the Rambam, it's going to be as part of a legal community that has shared sets of practices. So even for the Rambam, it has to be done with other people. So there is a sense in which they all agree on that point. They all agree that we need some sort of model that's not just the text. We need kind of a lived picture. Um, though for the Rambam, probably not all of us need that, and the real intellectual elites will just like know well enough that they can just go through the motions and like they don't need real human interaction. But most of us are not on that level, and I think it's very useful in reading the Rambam to not always just focus on what he says the top echelon should do, but what he says other people should do. Not only because most of us are not Moshe, which is like usually the only person in the other category, sometimes Moshe and the Avot, but you know, if anyone's Avram Mavino, I think that would be an interesting theological shift. Um, right, but always it's about being part of some, some group, even for the Rambam. So that's something that, that really unites all three of them. Thank you so, so much. Um, this has been a really, really interesting and, and wonderful conversation about sort of what our communities might look like if we thought about Halakha as being able to shape us ethically. So for the Leibovitians out there, you're, you've now been released from your obligations to think that Leibovitch is wrong, and you can go on thinking whatever you'd like about Halakha. Thank you very much.